Jesus House in Pursuit of God Discovering Purpose Maximizing Potential Impacting Lives This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London God bless you We want to thank you for your word. Lord, please breathe upon it, Heavenly Father. Let it do what you have purposed that it should do at this time, Father, in our lives. Uh, illuminate our hearts to receive the revelation that you have chosen to bring to us, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. Amen and Amen. Well, I'd like you to just open up your hearts. I feel that uh, the message, uh, as we move into this uh, part of our series, I feel that this message is so foundational. And, and if we receive it in our hearts, it has the capacity to change our lives and to change this church. Of course, we've been on the series um, around the heart. And not just myself, but um, some of the pastors who have preached uh, um, have also preached around the heart. And we started with our foundational text, which by now you should know, um, like the back of your hand, Proverbs, the fourth chapter and the 23rd verse. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. One translation would say, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the cause of life. Uh, the summation of all the various translations is that your heart is the most important part. It's priority. You've got to guard it, keep it. You've got to watch over it because it determines the way your life goes. And of course, like we said, instantly it's obvious it's not talking about your physical heart, that muscle that is on the left side of every human being, which is important because without it, physically, we can't function or we can't function like we should if it is damaged in one way or another. But we understand that it's more than the physical, that it's actually talking about our heart in terms of our innermost being, our inner man, um, what I have called the central processing system of a human being. That place in us where our mind, our will, our emotions are. That place where we make life decisions. So when it says keep your heart, it is talking about keeping that heart. Because it, the Bible makes clear that from there we make life decisions. And so of course the enemy would concentrate his efforts on making sure that in some way he damages that heart. You know, the Bible says in John, the 10th chap chapter and the 10th verse, Jesus says, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And a lot of his efforts in killing, stealing, and destroying will be targeted and directed at the heart. You see, because what he wants to do is induce a heart disease. Because he knows that once there's a heart disease, the person can't fulfill God's plans and purposes. The person can't function 
like this, they should. The person is really impaired in how they do life. And we talked about what these heart diseases are, the symptoms that beg the question, is there a heart d- disease? We talked about when your Christian work has become routine, mundane, it's dry, and it is dry for a length of time. Everybody goes through periods of dryness. But where you find that this is my Christian work, we talked about other symptoms that beg the question of whether there's a disease where a person lives in fear. Fear has taken a seat in their heart. Anxiety and worry and, and morbid sorrow and, and overcoming grief. Uh, and and we, we named different things, anger and a lot of those negative emotions that have taken a seat in a person's heart. Uh, where we find a lack of contentment, uh, where we find uh, a low self-esteem that has rooted itself in a person's heart, uh, where we find that joy does not exist, and on the contrary, the opposite exists. And the list goes on and on that beg the question, is this heart diseased? And so today, we want to go on to the next part of this journey, And we start the part of the journey that deals with the solution. If you want a title for today's message, it's the antidote to heart disease. The antidote to heart disease. And our foundation text is taken out of John's gospel. And 1 John particularly, the 4th chapter and the 8th verse. The, The antidote to heart disease where we find that a heart is diseased, what do we do? What is the cure? What is the solution? What can deal with that state of the heart and allow a person to start to live again like they should? The answer, in a nutshell, is the love of God. 1 John 4, verse 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In verse 16, he says the same thing with regards to who God is. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. It's that phrase, God is love, that I want us to start our journey at. It's actually foundational to everything that will come over the next so many weeks. It's foundational to us opening up our hearts and receiving the antidote to any form of heart disease. God is love. This is who God is. It is his character. It is his person. It isn't just something he does. It is who he is. The great theologian A.W. Tozer says this, Nothing God ever does or ever did or ever will do is separate from the love of God. God is love. You see, God has to amplify that phrase Amplify that truth. 
Break it down by His Spirit. Give revelation to us concerning that truth. God is love. Can you say that with me? God is love. Say it one more time. God is love. If you're watching online, you're worshiping with us online, then why don't you type it into the chat box. God is love. And in helping us understand that, that God is love, we want to understand what does that mean? What kind of love is this? God is love. That's all that God does. He loves. And I found it helpful to contrast that love that God gives with some other expressions of love. In fact, the Bible actually helps very much in this regard. The Bible, the New Testament expression of the Bible, was written in the Greek language. And the Greek language is slightly more expansive than the English language. So, when the Bible was translated, the Greek language might have a number of expressions for one word. The English language translated it into one word. So, whenever, whenever you find love in the New Testament, it's actually one of three expressions. It could mean one of three things. Because in the Greek language, there are basically four expressions of love. The first one is a word sturge, S-T-O-R-G-E. So there's a sturge kind of love. Now this is a love that is a family type of love, a familiar love, the love that, we've, that exists in a family. It's natural, it's unforced, it's instinctive. It's the affection and the bond that exists within a family. The love a parent feels for a child, for example. Or the love that brothers and sisters feel for each other. It really describes a family love. The second type of love is a philia type of love. I'm sure most of us know the American city Philadelphia um, and know that that word Philadelphia means the city of brotherly love. So what's a philia type of love? It's, it's the powerful emotional bond that exists in deep friendships where the love you have for a trusted friend, a confidant. You know, when we use the phrase he's my brother or she's my sister, and we're not using it in terms of a family relationship. We're alluding to a filial love where mutual interests bring people together. They, 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 they care for each other. They watch out for each other. They give towards each other. They are there for each other. It's a filial love. And then the third kind of love which the New Testament doesn't mention, but Songs of Solomon 
is a very clear example of this kind of love. It at least expresses it in parts of the Songs of Solomon, is what is called the Eros love. Now, this is a sensual or romantic love. It actually comes from the Greek mythology um, all around the Greek god Eros. And if it, was, if it was Roman, then the Roman god Cupid. Cupid and Eros were the same, same thing in, in the mythology. Now, that Greek god Eros was the god of love, sexual desire, physical attraction, and physical love. It's from Eros, that love, that the word erotic comes from. Now, this love is self-seeking. It's really about its own interest, its own satisfaction. Biblically, we are encouraged to release that love and celebrate it within the boundaries of marriage. Now, so a marriage is strengthened by the Eros love. The, the Bible encourages that within the boundaries of marriage. But then we come to the fourth expression of love. And this is the highest form of love. It's the agape love. It's the God kind of love. It's God's immeasurable, incomparable, unconditional, and sacrificial love. It's a love that gives without demanding or expecting any repayment. And that is the highest form of love. So when it says God is love, it's talking about the agape love. Nothing wrong with the other loves. You need a sturgy love in a family. It helps the family bond together. Filial love helps us enjoy deep relationships and deep friendships, meaningful friendships. And of course, Eros love is needed within the boundaries of marriage. No marriage can survive on it alone, but it's a, a major part of marriage. But then the agape love is a totally different thing. This God kind of love, this love that God has for you and I. So when the Bible says God is love, it's that agape love that the Bible is talking about. That sacrificial love, unconditional love, that love that cannot be measured, that love that will go to any lengths to express itself as it has done for you and I. It's the love that God has for you and the love that God has for me. Now, let's amplify that as you go along the, with me on this journey. What does this love look like? What is its application? How does it manifest to us? If we just continue in the scriptures that we were reading, 1 John 4 verse 8, if we go on to verse 9 and verse 10, the Bible has this to say. It says, in this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, what does that mean? I want to share with you four things 
that I pray will help expand our minds to begin to understand in a new way and prepare our hearts to receive the love of God. I am convinced that if we receive this love of God like he wants us to, we are going to be looking at totally changed and transformed lives and a completely transformed church. There are actually five things, but the fifth one I will leave for next week. So what are these four things out of that scripture? Number one is God's sacrifice. We must understand that for God, his love for us was based on a sacrifice. It was sacrificial. He gave. He sacrificed. A lot of times when we think about sacrifice with regards to what happened on the way to Calvary and what happened at Calvary, we think instantly of Jesus sacrificing. Of course, we, we saw, we read, we understand his sacrifice. It was, in, it was his hands that the nails were driven to, through, his feet that the nail was driven through, his side that was pierced, his head that had the crown of thorns pressed into it. And a lot of times we don't think about God's sacrifice. But I want us to understand that God did sacrifice. It was his son that he gave. Like the Bible says in John 3 verse 16, For God so loved the world, it's an agape kind of love, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He gave his son. He sacrificed him. He let him go. He released him to come and pay the price. It was a major sacrifice. He gave his son. Let's remember that, that God sacrificed his son for you and I. And that leads me to the second thing. It was his son that he gave. What he gave. He gave his only begotten son. The price of his love was high. When we put a value on something, when we put a price on something, we are showing how we value that thing. So what was the price that was on your life and my life? The price was simple. It was the life of the Son of God. So you and I have value. Don't let anybody tell you that you don't have value. You have value. You are so expensive that the price for you is the, begotten, the only begotten son of God. In 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20, the Passion Translation, the Bible says this about you. You were God's expensive purchase, paid for with tears of blood. So by all means then, use your body to bring glory to God. 
You are God's expensive purchase. You were paid for. What is the currency that bought you? It's not billions of pounds. It's not zillions of dollars. It is the blood that was shed of the only begotten Son of God. That is the value that God himself placed on you. Can someone say amen to that? And so when circumstances try to devalue you, your recourse is to go to the book that receipts the transaction by which you were bought. To understand your value. I can pay for some priceless art. You can walk into my house and think it's just the scribbling of a child. But when I show you the receipt that says that I paid $20 million for what you think is scribbling, how many know that you change your mind immediately? So when my circumstances come against me to try and devalue me, to try and tell me that I am not worth anything, I am not valuable in any way, I go to the receipt. And where is the receipt? In the Word of God. It tells me that I was expensively purchased. I was paid for with tears of blood. Can someone say amen to that? And the Apostle Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter 1 verses 18 and 19. For you know that your lives were ransomed once and for all from the empty and futile way of life handed down from generation to generation. Once and for all, a ransom was paid for you and for me. Once and for all, Christ himself stepped into the bidding battle. And there was a bidding battle that was going on for your life and my life. The enemy was bidding for us. The various sins that trapped us had bid for us. And they all felt they had ownership of us. But then thank God that God had a plan for your redemption and my redemption. That we were going to be brought back, reconciled to him, brought back into his family. And that plan saw its fulfillment in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And as he steps forward with the ransom, the prize, those who held us bound had no choice but to release us because it was a prize that they could not resist. He goes on to say it was not a ransom payment of silver and gold, which eventually perishes, but the precious blood of Christ, who like a spotless unblemished lamb was sacrificed for us. Someone needs to look the enemy in the face and say, you can't do anything concerning me because I've been bought with the blood of Jesus. Someone needs to, needs to declare to their circumstances, you won't overcome me, you won't overrun me, you won't suppress me, you won't depress me because I'm no longer yours. I have been bought 
expensively with the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Someone needs to look over their children and declare that from day to day. You are going nowhere because the enemy doesn't own you. You are not going off track. A price has been paid for you. And thankfully it wasn't me that paid the price. But our Lord paid for your life with his blood. Your life will glorify our Lord because he bought you and he has ownership of you. Can someone say amen? He gave his only begotten son. The third thing, and this is a marvel, is that he initiated it. The scripture says, not that we loved God, but he loved us. He initiated it. And this is mind-blowing. We were his enemies. We were rebellious. We turned our backs on him. We were doing exactly what we pleased. He was entitled to wait, sit and wait until we decided to come back to him. We are the ones who should have initiated it. But his love was such that he couldn't wait for you and I to come to our senses. And so he initiated this act of love. He started it. He sent his son. He gave his son. The Bible says in Romans, the fifth chapter and the eighth verse, but God demonstrates his own love towards us. There was a demonstration of it. The enemy can't lie to us. He, the enemy can't say, God doesn't love you. He can't say, God doesn't love me. And why can't he say that? Because we have a demonstration of his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As he was going to the cross, as he was marching up that hill, as the nails were being driven through his hands, as his back was being lacerated with the whip, as the crown was being pressed, crown of thorns pierced into his head, His mind wasn't blank. His mind was full of thoughts. And one of the thoughts on his mind were the names and lives of those that he was going to the cross for. That's why the enemy does not have the end of the story. Because the end of the story was on his mind. He didn't see you messed up. He saw you glorious in heaven, having finished running your race, praising with the saints. He didn't see where you dropped the ball. He didn't see where it had fallen apart. He saw the end as God does from the beginning. And so the enemy wants us to think that this is the end of the story. But then we know that this is not how the story ends. Because the story of your life and my life ends with us fulfilling God's plans and purposes here. And transiting to an eternity with our Heavenly Father where we celebrate Him for the rest of eternity. If that's you, can someone say Amen? 
He initiated it. He started it. He expressed the love to us first. And aren't we grateful that he did that? And the fourth thing is that he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Now what exactly does that mean? Let me start by saying a truth that I need us to understand. God's love does not do away with all his other characteristics. So we might want a God whose love will overlook his holiness, overlook his righteousness, overlook the aspect of him that judges sin. But that's not the God of the Bible. If he did that, he would be less God than he is. So God's love expresses itself in his entire person. So he is love in holiness, love in righteousness, love in judgment, love in expressing his wrath. And that presents a challenge. Because here were this bunch of people. Or here were, this, here, here, were, here were these people. Who were in sin. Rebellious. Turned their back against him. Doing stuff they shouldn't do. And we would wish that his love would express itself in overlooking the sin. Overlooking the rebellion. But then he, if he did that, he wouldn't be God. Because of course we understand very clearly that he must judge sin. And you know, a lot of some contemporary expressions of, Christ, of, of supposed Christianity want to remove sin from Christianity. It cannot be removed. Because the wages of sin is always death. But then this is how amazing grace, God's love, played it out for you and I. God sat in heaven in Trinity in council, looked at the waywardness of man, realized that as God he would have to judge the sin, pour out his wrath on the sin. But then he, he now came up with what I think is so amazing. Is it possible for that judgment to come upon someone else? For that wrath to be poured out on someone else? But for that to happen, it would have to be someone without sin. And why did he want this solution? Because his love had driven him to the point, compelled him to want something better and glorious for the object of his love. To make a way for the object of his love, you and I. But then, the tension was there. As God, I have to judge it. I have to pour my wrath on it. 
But then also as God, my love compels me to want to make a way for them. How can those two tensions be married together? They could be married together if someone else could take on the judgment and still allow God to be God because he has judged sin. Someone else could take on the wrath of God and God still remains God because he has poured out his wrath on sin. But that someone else would have to be someone who had no sin because as if the person had sin, then the whole thing falls apart because you can't judge sin for others on someone who already has sin. And I reckon that at that point in time, that must have been where Jesus would have put up his hand in that council and said, you know what? I'll go for them. I'll go down and take the heat. I'll bear the sin. I'll take on your wrath. I guess that's why the Bible would say he was slain before the foundations of the earth. He was dead before he died because he had agreed to go on and take your sin and my sin. And you know, when we read the account of the end of that journey, we begin to get a measure of an understanding of the love of God. In Matthew, the 27th chapter, from the 45th verse, we read about how for three hours there was darkness over the face of the earth. It wasn't darkness like you and I know with glimpses of light. It was a darkness that was so thick, a blanket of darkness, that you could almost feel it taste it even, and touch it. It was a, as if God himself was symbolically saying, what is about to happen, I can't bear to watch it. The price was so, was so high in giving his son for you and I. And don't think about it as for the church universal. It is true. But think about it as for you. Your name on his mind. Your life being thought about. And then Jesus hangs on that cross. And for the first time, he doesn't call God Father. That term of endearment, he calls God for the first time in the Synoptic Gospels, God. Because something is happening that has never happened before. Eloi, Eloi, we hear his voice. Lama sabachthani. My God, my God, not my father, my father. Why have you forsaken me? Because for the first time, there's a separation between him and God. In his life, Jesus had faced a lot of physical and emotional pain. We can't imagine 
the pain at the Garden of Gethsemane. No one can imagine the physical pain of nails being driven through your body. A, a spear thrust into your side. Dimensions of pain that none of us will ever experience. A crown of thorns pierced into your head. He had experienced the emotional pain of betrayal where one of the closest to you, your inner circle, is the one who leads those who are going to crucify you to you in Judas. He knew what it was to be betrayed from inside. Deep emotional pain. But when he was saying, can this cup pass away from me? It wasn't the cup of physical pain or the cup of emotional pain. It was the cup of being forsaken temporarily by his father. It was the cup of a disruption in a relationship that had known no disruption. Eternity passed and will never know another disruption. It was the cup of the weight of the darkness, the separation. It was the cup of crying out to God and not hearing a response from Him for the first time in their relationship. It was the pain of that separation. And why was he paying this price of that separation? Why was he going to this length? Because his father and him loved you and I. And so he's hanging there and crying out, God, this is, this is almost too much for me. Almost too much for me. I can take the cross. I can take the nails. I can take the lacerations. I can take the betrayal. But Lord, for me to call out to you and for you not to answer, for me not to feel that you're there, not to know, to know that you've intentionally stepped back. God, if it wasn't for the love that we have for them, I want this cup to pass over me. And it wasn't even that he cried once. Verse 50 tells us, And Jesus cried out again. It was a lot for him. When you think about what God did for us, how much he loves you and I, it makes you face anything life brings your way. Cried out again, with a loud voice, they heard him again. And then he yielded up his spirit. A transaction took place. A transaction that was motivated by love. God the Father regarded his son as if he were a sinner. The Apostle Paul writes it like this. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for you and I. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Bible says he yielded up his spirit. But then verse 51. I think is one of the most important scriptures in the Bible. 
all of them are very important. But this, this scripture is, is mind-blowing to me. Then behold. It speaks for itself. After all that had happened, that led up to the crucifixion, that flowed into three hours of darkness, that went on to a cry from the lips of our Lord and Savior, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, not my father, my father, for the first time, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After the separation, temporarily, after another cry, as a result of that cup, After, in a sense, he was forsaken. For who? For who? Forsaken by his father? For me? It's almost mind-blowing. And then, his head falls to the side. And he's dead. But then it doesn't end there. The Bible says then, somebody say then with me. Go and say it boldly here. If you're on the chat, type it in the chat. Then, behold. It's almost like, hang on, it's not over. See. What should I see, Lord? The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. A veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. In the Holy of Holies, the symbol of God, the Ark of the Covenant, No one could go beyond the veil except the high priest. And even he could only go at certain times of the year. 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, 4 inches thick. And at periodic times of the year, the high priest would go in to commune with God, to take the sins of the nation before God and ask for forgiveness. To sprinkle the blood of an animal that had been killed on behalf of the people. And the people would wait for the high priest to come out. And if the high priest made a mistake in his ministrations, the wrath of God would strike him dead. And that's how they lived. That's how they approached God. But then as Jesus dies, that veil, 60 feet 
in height, 30 feet in length, length and 4 inches thick, is torn in two. Not by the hand of a man, not with a pair of scissors or a knife or anything sharp. It's torn in two simply because Jesus has finished his assignment. And what does it signify? That's the symbolism of it. It signifies that you and I now don't need any high priest. That you and I can come ourselves. The obstruction is taken away. The barrier is removed. So the writer of Hebrews says we can come boldly before the throne of grace where we are guaranteed that we receive grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. And so we don't need a high priest. It's a variation of an Old Testament Christianity that talks about somebody leading you to God. A high priest has made a way and he's now seated in heaven interceding on your behalf as you come into the Holy of Holies. And if we didn't understand that, if as human beings we didn't understand that, nature testifies as to the awesomeness of what happened. The earth quaked. Why did the earth quake? Because an amazing thing had happened. The veil was now torn in two. You and I can come to a throne where grace is guaranteed to receive the love of God. The rocks were split to testify about the awesomeness of what had happened. May we not allow the rocks and the earth to testify about a revelation when we don't testify about that revelation ourselves. The veil of the temple is torn. We come to receive love from God. He's already poured out the love as we will find out. It's up to us to receive it. Think about this love. Personalize it. Look at your circumstances that are telling you the opposite. Take what you have heard. And I need you to understand that there is simply no greater love than this love of God. If you receive it in your life, be ready for a transformation. It changes who you are and changes how you live life, as we'll find out next week. No greater love, none on this earth. It will find you, it will change you, it will make a way for you. It will change who you are, this love of God. Be blessed by this ministration.
were talking about stories. Um, I was talking to my wife, Shalan, Pastor Derley as well. And, and we just thought that there's a lot that people are going through. The enemy wants you to think that the story today is the end. And believe me, especially if you serve where I serve, there are stories. There are stories of young people who are watching their friends celebrating in this results, season of results, but who feel like they have failed. They haven't done as well as they thought, as well as maybe their parents thought. And they are really despondent. There are stories of broken families sitting here. Stories of pain and hurt that people who should have loved have caused. There are stories of wounded wives, wounded husbands, wounded children. And we've become quite good at covering the real stories. There are stories of children who have gone astray. I was almost overwhelmed talking to a lovely elderly woman whose son had passed away just weeks ago. There are stories of broken relationships, hopes dashed. There are stories of answered prayer that seems delayed. There are stories of people who are battling with a long-term illness. There are stories of another miscarriage. I'm being told the biological clock is ticking. There are stories of a failed business and another failed business and a spirit of failure seeking to take ownership. I'm sure you know that life happens. The list is endless. This is not exhaustive. There are stories of families dealing with a disability, a challenged child, mental health challenges. There are stories. Believe me, there are as many of us as are here, as many stories as there are. Yesterday, had to comfort one of our leaders. Strong girl. Dedicated. But I could 
feel the pain as she talked to me whose mother had died suddenly. Just listening to her say, Pastor, I, I saw her just a few hours before. Stories. But the encouragement is that like the Bible says, once and for all, he died for us. The love was not a love that solved a problem and doesn't work today. The love of God continues to take us through whatever life brings our way. That's why Ariola sang, that's not how the story ends. And it's happened in all the services. I felt a strong urge to minister personally to people. I don't know why God is doing that in this season. But I just obey. Because he must be doing something. And so if you're in that place where life has happened. And if you're truthful. You know in your head that God loves you. But the struggle is in your heart. Not your physical heart, but the heart that we described. We're going to pray with you today. You will receive a fresh outpouring of that love. He will envelope you in, in his love. It will rest in your heart that these circumstances are liars. God loves you. From wherever you are, come. If you're that person, it might just be one person. That's okay. Come, 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 come from wherever you are. Come, come. You want, you, you want to receive that love in that way. It's a physical contact. Come, come, come from where you are. You know, you know, you know. Those circumstances are threatening, threatening, threatening. Come, come, come. Come. That's, that's what we do in church. Come. 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 That song is a declaration. It's a declaration. Because that's, that's the assurance you have. God. Christians, we want to put a spirit on that song. So when we hear this song, we think of funerals. This is a song of victory. It's not a funeral dirge. 
because he lives. My brother and sister who are out here, their story has changed. Amen. So, Ariola, please, when you sing it, sing it like it's a victorious song. That's what it is. It declares victory.
your hand on your heart. Put your hand on your heart. Whether you're in this auditorium or online, put your hand on your heart. Father, we we just come before you, God. We know, Heavenly Father, that the human mind on its own cannot simply understand or comprehend in any way the love that you have for us. And so, Father, we are asking that your Spirit will give us revelation. That for everyone who is desirous of experiencing this love in a new way, knowing this love in a new way, that, Father, by your Spirit, O oh God, you will give us revelation that will transform us, O oh God. That, Father, let that revelation, O oh God, of your love flood our hearts. Illuminate our hearts, Father, with your love. Father, we thank you. Lord, we bless you. And if there's anyone who hasn't taking the first step to receive that love. You want to give your life to Jesus. You want to welcome him into your heart. What better opportunity to do that than now? If you would just say this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I welcome you into my heart. I receive your son Jesus as my Lord and Savior. This afternoon I give my life to him. I make a commitment to turn away from anything sinful as I pledge my life to you Lord. Thank you for receiving me into your family. By my confession, I declare that I am now a child of yours, born again into your family. In Jesus' name, amen.